Hello, world singers. My name is Brooke. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. everyone we hope you are having a great time whenever you're picking up this podcast we have been doing a series on the different relationships throughout the cosmere and got a bunch of great feedback but mainly what the people wanted was to talk about villains and rivalries in the cosmere Yeah, we are going to be talking about antagonists today as our extended and final episode of our relationships series, and I'm pretty excited. This is a super cool topic. Uh, We had thought about it originally, and then it was nice to get some fan feedback saying that this was also interesting to you guys, Um, and I think that this is a big, strong suit of Brandon Sanderson's work as well, writing... um, not compassionate villains, but villains that really work their way into the story in a meaningful way. I think that that is a good description because it's such a nice thing to have antagonists or villains that are part of the story in a, in a real way and that kind of subvert expectations of what we imagine traditional villains to be. I feel like we've talked about this multiple times in other podcasts, but Brandon is very good at taking a known theme or a known trope and then subverting your expectations, whether that's just his use of magic and the way that it works in the world, or more importantly, his use of character and story and plot. And just as you think you're figuring something out, Brandon comes in. He's like a great mystery writer, but he doesn't write mystery books. (laughs) That's so true. I think what we're going to start with today is actually some not Cosmere things. Because what I really found in researching this episode and just thinking overall about villains and rivalries and antagonists is a couple of works that are nonfiction uh, done by two gentlemen, Robert McKee and his book Story and John Truby and his book The Anatomy of Story. Both are used by screenwriters and playwrights and authors all over the world uh, because it just kind of lays out some simplistic aspects of how a story works, what you're working towards. And I feel like whether Brandon has read these things, he understands these things. He is clearly a master. (laughs) Exactly. But it really helped to simplify and kind of explain why I like these characters by understanding the underlying point of like what is an antagonist what makes a good antagonist yeah i think the dynamics between the protagonist and antagonist in brandon sanderson's work are something that i really admire and always have um because like i said i put this in a comment to i believe it was hannah on our facebook page shout out to hannah um he does such a good job of creating these dynamics that are foils so the characters end up being 
two sides of the same coin in a lot of circumstances. And you see the world and the situation that they're in through these two different perspectives. And a lot of times those two characters are aligned in their goal. You know, their goal is, I want to make the world a better place. But the way that they get there is completely different. And those are the relationships and the dynamics that I think are just so interesting and enlightening and make these stories really robust and deep. So what I would like to do just to kind of give us a foundation to work from is read a couple of quotes and also just kind of some bullet points about what we're looking for in these different rivalries or antagonist-protagonist relationships. Yeah, what makes a good villain? Start with the concept that a villain or an antagonist is exceptionally good at attacking the hero's greatest weakness. From Robert McKee's story, he says, a protagonist and his or her story can only be as intellectually fascinating and emotionally compelling as the forces of antagonism make them. 100%. And I think we've talked about this before, Something that Brandon Sanderson does so well is having his characters be really three-dimensional so that even the protagonists, they have weaknesses and they have um, areas that we can empathize with them because we all have weaknesses. And that's something that makes those characters more compelling and makes the story stronger. And then we have here that the villains sort of serve to highlight those weaknesses. And when a villain properly attacks those weaknesses it creates empathy for us with that heroic character uh, and that is really what i think brandon is so great at you know we care so much about all these different characters and you and i have talked for hours and hours so many hours on the and it's not just on mic like off mic <laughs> we talk even more about the cosmere but we talk about these characters so much because we have an empathetic connection to them. And part of that empathy comes in the way that the antagonists attack our hero's greatest weakness. And then in addition to that, good villains pressure the protagonist to make difficult choices. This is so often the case of like what is driving plot is that the antagonist is forcing our character out of their rut, out of the, you know, you're Luke Skywalker and you're hanging out on Tatooine, but then antagonist. Yeah, there's, there's no story if Luke just stays on Tatooine. Yeah, like, that's it's a very, very boring. boring story. <laughs> Luke, no one cares that you can shoot Womp Rants. It's not important. Uh, but antagonism forces the character to make difficult decisions. His aunt and uncle are killed and Luke has to leave with Obi-Wan Kenobi to go, you know, fly across the universe and find out and have his own story. And the same is always true. Antagonists, villains pressure the protagonist to make difficult choices. And Robert McKee said that the greater the pressure, the deeper the revelation, and the truer the choice to the character's essential nature. So then, I mean, that means that villains are essential to the building of the protagonist character. And that is really what I want to get at and talk about today. How are these rivalry relationships and these villains actually essential to the characters uh, that we, you know, label the protagonists or the heroes. It's kind of like, I don't know what the actual technical term is. I think it's something like 
shadow art, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the a, a visual medium where the negative space is depicted rather than the positive space. And because you have the negative space, your brain can like define the positive space. And let's go to, you know, keep in, in the Cosmere. We are Cosmere conversations after all, but music, right? The power of music on Rashar. Music is not about one single sustained note just like played over mm, and over again. It's yeah. about the fluctuation Harmony, yes, melody. between sound and not sound, between mm. noise and then the shadow art, as you said, the the weight in between. And mm. that's what creates rhythm and, and melody and harmony and eventual beauty uh, is the sound and then the absence of sound. And so the last little bit uh, that I think can be present, but this is part of what Brandon does so good at subverting our expectations, is that good villains will often be competing for the same goal as the protagonist. Mm -hmm. Those are the relationships that I find the most interesting. And I think that that's always the case, but so often... I think Brandon sets us up to see the antagonist and the protagonist as completely the opposite and not competing for the same goal. And it's only with the revelations throughout the story that we come to understand Mm. that their goals are actually aligned. And we'll get into that as we explore each of these characters. But Brooke, could you actually go to a Cosmere character in the form of Zazed, uh, because I think he has a quote that kind of summarizes this idea. Yeah, this is a great quote for this theme. At first glance, the key in the locket fits may seem very different. Zaze said. Different in shape, different in function, different in design. The man who looks at them without knowledge of their true nature might think them opposites, for one is meant to open and the other to keep closed. Yet, upon closer examination, he might see that without one, the other becomes useless. The wise man then sees that both lock and key were created for the same purpose. So keep all of these ideas in mind, because this is what we're going to keep returning to. Villains that are good at attacking our hero's weaknesses, pressure our protagonists to make difficult decisions, and are competing for the same goal as our heroes. And if you liked this kind of intro, I highly recommend to check out the YouTube channel, Lessons from the Screenplay, where he often brings in uh, these quotes from John Truby and Robert McKee to talk about famous movies obviously, screenplays. Uh, But we are going to kind of take that mold and apply it to our lovely Cosmere. So let's get into the characters from the Cosmere, starting with Lord Ruler and Kelsier from Mistborn Era 1. This is obviously one of the first rivalry relationships that we are introduced to, and it's the driving factor for Kelsier because his life is so entwined. Yeah, his entire existence, at least by the time we meet him, is defined by the Lord Ruler. And he sees the Lord Ruler as this obviously super-powered individual who's controlled Scadriel for a thousand years, but mainly is using the power to oppress and ultimately destroy the way of life for quote-unquote normal people 
on Scandrial using the Noble class, using uh, his different creations, the Kandra and the Coloss. Inquisitors. Yeah, and the Inquisitors to invoke fear. So the Lord Ruler and Kelsier are seemingly diametrically opposed because we have a story of rebellion led by Kelsier and he finds this little crew and eventually obviously finds Vin and trains them all and motivates them all, pushing them forward to rebel against the Lord Ruler and kill him. Yeah, I mean, the first two books, right, are completely focused on just taking down the Lord Ruler. And so the, you know, motivation seems so opposite the lord ruler is all powerful kelsier is leading this rebellion it's got a little bit of a a kind of like the beginnings of america vibe to it where it's like there's this big powerful empire that is controlling us and we are being oppressed and we need to rise up against and start this big war and kelsier is just doing it on a on a very small level but trying to inspire this revolution against the lord ruler of course kelsier wouldn't be that motivated uh, unless the Lord Ruler had set up the situation to punish Kelsier by sending him to the pits of Hathsin and killing his wife. It's all, their lives are intricately connected, and so their motivations are playing back and forth. Because what we eventually find out, of course, is that Kelsier and the Lord Ruler's underlying goal of a stable and happy Scadriel are actually pretty closely linked. Uh, we don't realize that, and Kelsier never realizes that until after his death. But I find the fact that Brandon was able to set up this villain in a way that we are always intrigued about his power sources and and how he is staying alive and how he uh you know can resist death and have his head chopped off and all this like crazy stuff that we hear about the lord ruler yeah i think part of the dramatic suspense uh in these books are the fact that the lord ruler is so mysterious to start with um and in a sense i mean we've talked about how the lord ruler defines who Kelsier is but also at least for the reader Kelsier defines who the Lord Ruler is for us um the only things that we really hear about him come from Kelsier we don't get a good look behind the Lord Ruler's eyes at least until we have a little bit more exploration by Vin uh and in Mistborn Secret History and that's actually where this quote comes from Preservation says, now, now, God said, that would be hasty. What would removing him, the Lord Ruler, accomplish? It would just raise another leader who is more transient and cause chaos and even more deaths than the Lord Ruler has caused. Better to have stability, yes, a constant leader, end quote. So preservation actually admired or liked the Lord Ruler being in power because of the stability and the preservation that <laughs> the Lord Ruler caused. But of course, Kelsier can't see that because one of Kelsier's main weaknesses is that because of his torture, because of his experiences, because of the oppression that he's seen, he's unable to 
see beyond his own pain and his own hatred and his own experiences. Yeah, he certainly has tunnel vision. Yes. And I think we kind of talked about this in the last episode, um, but this is where... Vin and Kelsey are diverged. Absolutely. Where Vin has a much more broad perspective and she kind of brings that up to Kelsier, but he is just like hyper focused. And because of that, we go down this whole path. <laughs> I think that is really the key way that the Lord Ruler is going to change and challenge Kelsier is by attacking this weakness in that Kelsier becomes a little bit obsessed. Well, definitely. Completely yeah, obsessed. Not a little bit. Definitely <laughs> becomes obsessed with the destruction of the Lord Ruler and the destruction of the system that the Lord Ruler has created. But of course, what we discover and what Kelsier discovers after his own death in Mistborn's Secret History is that the goals of the Lord Ruler are actually relatively in line with what Kelsier wants. Yeah, and they may they may not have, you know, gone about that in the same way. Like I think Kelsier still disagrees with the methods that the Lord Ruler used, but then we do come to see that their goals are much more closely aligned. Another quote from Sazed, he suffered much beneath Ruin's hand, but he was a good man who ultimately had honorable intentions. We see this kind of play out. In fact, we see it like a play. And, and that's uh, another quote <laughs> that comes uh, from Kelsier in Mistborn Secret History after he's had some of uh, the revelations. Uh, he says, quote, Once you step behind the curtain and see the actors as the people they are, it becomes harder to pretend that the play is real. End quote. Kelsier had become obsessed with the play, obsessed with his role as the revolutionary. Yeah, that's such a good description. Yeah, the he, he was the assassin of the Lord Ruler and he was going to change all this and his hatred of the Lord Ruler was motivating him. Yeah, he like creates this role for himself, plays the role to a T. He's created this great villain for himself. And then in Mistborn Secret History, he does exactly what you just said, steps behind the curtain and then is like, oh, this great villain is actually like a complex human. Yeah, because obviously what we come to understand is that the Lord Ruler had become a sliver of infinity and takes up the power of preservation in that moment, becoming that sliver of infinity where he has all of this power and he does a bunch of things, obviously, that change Scadrial and, and create all. But most importantly, he realizes that the big problem here is ruin, is that there is this force that is looking to destroy everything that is Scadrial and that it is an unending force equal to the power that he now has. And so his entire purpose is to keep ruin at bay which, of course, will become the entire purpose of Vin as well, and that's the story that we follow to the end of Mistborn Era 1. I think that this complex relationship between the Lord Ruler and Kelsier, how their lives are interconnected, how their goals are somewhat aligned, and how each of them kind of creates the other one and challenges the other one really makes it 
one of Brandon's best example of a villain and a hero. It's just such a good microcosm for the whole world and the whole story. Like, not only do these two characters define each other, they essentially define everything we know about Scadriel, like, within this little bubble. I think what is obviously most interesting in the future of Mistborn Era 1 is that Kelsier, as the cognitive shadow that existed in Mistborn's secret history, continues to live and eventually reclaims the body in Mistborn Era 2, where he is confused for or named the Lord Ruler. Ooh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, he he literally, in some ways, becomes the Lord Ruler, uh, but is obviously still motivated uh, in a different way. I'm very interested to see how Kelsier comes to affect the world of Scandriel in Mistborn Era 2 and uh, going forward. Next up, we're going to hop over to Rashar, Dalinar, and Sadius. Two characters that were introduced in The Way of Kings as rivals, and they are, of course, rivals that are also allies. Allies trying to fight the Parshendi and unite Alethkar, but two people who it seems could not be more opposite in their attitudes, their beliefs, their treatment of those around them. We see a lot indirectly of Sadius because of through Kaladin's eyes and the way that the camps are run um, and Sadius's management. I mean, I think we see more of Sadius interacting with Dalinar. Oh, you mean just like the sort of trickle-down effect of Sadius's leadership? Exactly. For sure. Yeah, and so we, we see a lot of that. And then as the stories progress, we see Sadius and Dalinar interacting more and more, especially in Words of Radiance. Uh, but the, the way that I see this relationship as kind of following those lines is that even more than the Lord Ruler and Kelsier, it is very clear that Dalinar and Sadius are both very interested in the same goals. From the very beginning, it does appear that Sadius is quite interested, like Dalinar, in a united and strong Alethkar. I don't know if I'd say united, but definitely strong. I would say they both want Alethkar to be strong. Dalinar thinks that they'll be strong by uniting all of the High Princes. Uh, Sadius thinks that that is not the case and that they are better off leaving all of the High Princes to rule their own lands and be their own lords. Would you say that Sadius does at least share the motivation of like protecting Elokar? Yeah, definitely. They have the same devotion to their king. Yeah, and that is like they are very much more two sides of the same coin, and it's easier to see that up front. Possibly because they're like two mortal characters and we see them both like more on equal grounds where Lord Ruler and Kelsier are very clearly on different grounds. But what I love about Sadius and Dalinar's relationship is how each of them attacks the other's weakness so well. Mm, Yeah, I mean, it's definitely clear why they were allied in the first place, because they 
each have different strengths that complement each other. So if they are working on a team together, I think they would be a really strong, great team because Sadius has the charisma and the political know-how. He knows how to talk to people. He knows how to kind of play that political game and negotiate and Dalinar is the sword slash hammer slash club slash anything you can hit people with. Yes, the stick. <laughs> and while I don't know if I would uh, say that Sadius is the carrot or, you know, catching all the flies with honey, he is definitely more capable and able to play the political game uh, where Dalinar is obviously so weak. I mean, we see this even after Sadius's death, that Dalinar struggles so much with the politics and the idea of how to unite people, how to bind people together. It is Dalinar's maybe key struggle, other than his own internal struggle. Yeah, it's his area of most growth, I would mm -hmm. say. Like, that is the the area in which he is trying to learn and develop and I think it is because of Sadius that Dalinar grows in the direction that he does. Yeah, I mean, on some level, you can see them just as antagonists to each other. But, I mean, Sadius does try to give him a lot of advice. Exactly. In a, like, snarky way. But nevertheless, he's he, like, tries to help in his own way. It's not always completely about pure antagonism and their relationship i find to be very interesting and I, i'm gonna be honest i was very sad slash shocked at the end of words of radiance when adolin does kill uh sadius because i i thought there was still room for growth there yeah i agree uh but we have in sadius a person who we kind of peel back the layers on more and more and the more we find out about him the more interesting i mean i i really love the moments between sadius and his wife yeah those are great scenes and it i mean they remarked on kind of like a lot of different aspects like how his wife wasn't uh, the most beautiful woman uh, that Sadius had seen. And Sadius himself was not a very um, beautiful or attractive man. He was kind of, you know, described as like uh, having a paunch and, you know, kind of... Yeah, he's like bulbous. Yeah, I think exactly. is the way that, that he's is... described a lot and like red face. Yeah, red face and bulbous. Um, and his wife is kind of uh, plump and short and, and doesn't fit the traditional uh, models of beauty. But I, I feel like the way that they interact with this kind of like pure trust between each other and relying on one another is something that makes Sadius so much more of a threat to Dalinar than the external threat of the Parshendi or anything like that. Yeah, I think the first time we see Sadius and his wife together, I felt like, Ooh, like she's the real villain. Like she's the one you really have to watch out for. She's like dangerous. And because she is now the most powerful member of, of Sadius's house and has, well, did appoint Amaram, but then, you know, he went all crazy. Uh, and she is still around and she still controls, you know, a large, powerful, and wealthy yeah. uh, part that of- That bitch ain't going anywhere. Exactly. So we're going to keep an eye on her, but 
it is her relationship that kind of like informs a little a little bit more of Sadius's behavior and the way that he operates. You know, he kind of has uh, like a little bit of a, a Varus or Littlefinger aspect around him where he's mm. in the, the circle of power, uh, but he's not the clear leader, which is obviously Dalinar. You know, maybe that's Robert Baratheon without all the drinking, <laughs> like, you know, a cleaned up Robert Baratheon. But uh, I don't know. You don't think he's Ned Stark? Well, I would say that I'm, the honorable always. Well, they both die, um, and Dalinar Fair. stays alive. So Go it's Dalinar. A, yeah, different, uh, different world entirely when you play that Game of Thrones. <laughs> but I think that where Sadius and Dalinar are two sides of the coin, where Brandon is so good, is at allowing us to kind of empathize with Sadius in some ways. He's always very clearly like the bad guy and his camp is obviously like torturing Kaladin and we don't have any good, um, you know, descriptions of Sadius or Amaram from Kaladin's perspective. Uh, But, you know, there's at least a little bit of, okay, Sadius plays a different game. Yeah, and you like, he makes rational sense, right? Where you're like, I mean, he does have a good point. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he's a little bit, uh, like the villain in Black Panther, Eric Killmonger, mm. where you you at least kind of empathize with his point. Yeah. Oh, you're not T'Challa. I mean, you're not the cool guy that I, I'm following. <laughs> but like you, you kind of do have an empathy towards Sadius's point. Well, and it's very clear that if Dalinar did take at least some of Sadius's, he would advice, be better. Yeah, he would be better off. Um. But that's why Sadius gives that advice, right? He knows that Dalinar is not going to listen to him. And Sadius, of course, does change Dalinar's mind in one key area, which is forcing Dalinar, convincing Dalinar to be more aggressive in seeking out the Parshendi, pushing Dalinar and cooperating with him, allowing the... Quote, unquote, cooperating. It's all all a setup. Damn you, Sadius. But pushing him throughout Way of Kings to extend his military further and further from the camps, uh, to cross more and more of those bridges, to get out all the way to the tower. That's what it's called, right? Yeah. Uh, Where they have this like big plateau. Yeah. The final battle is going to happen in Way of Kings and everything is building up to this battle. And then we realize that it has all been a setup by Sadius, that every moment of manipulation and advice and even the like kind agreement. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. When he's like, you know what we're here for? We're here to protect Elicar. We're here to protect the country. We're here to unite. And so like all of that was a setup to force Dalinar into this situation. And that's where we come back to what Robert McKee said. You have to have an antagonist that forces your protagonist to make difficult choices. And that is what Sadius does. He does it through manipulation. He does it through blind force. He does it in a bunch of different ways. But the end result is that Dalinar is always forced to make difficult choices because of Sadius. Sadius's, I think, biggest contribution is just 
pushing Dalinar into a corner over and over again. He just keeps like taking away Dalinar's options and saying, now you only get to choose between the two things that I want you to choose between. Over and over again, we see Sadius just back him into a corner, the corner that Sadius wants him in um, and puts him into these difficult situations that um, show us something about Dalinar's character, right? We always see something about people when they're forced to make a difficult decision and then also drives the plot forward yeah and the the deeper the challenge the the harder the push the more revealing that moment of decision becomes and of course it's not just pushing dalinar but it is also pushing kaladin as well it's happening in a more indirect way obviously sadius i don't even think oh he knows that kaladin exists because he's like the bridgeman who survived the torture and whatnot but yeah he he doesn't care uh, about kaladin but we have these but the conditions of his camp you're totally right do define kaladin and create the person that he becomes yes and of course that moment with dalinar out on the tower being surrounded by enemies waiting for sadius's troops to cross and help and seeing them turn away is just heart-wrenching i mean it is so bad but then you are obviously you know, you flash over to Kaladin's perspective, watching Sadius's army turn away, and he is then forced into to make a difficult decision. Yes, and it's the decision that he had been avoiding the entire book. You know, he is hiding. Kaladin is in. He's fearful. He is in a weakened state. He's a slave. He's always trying to do everything without being caught, without going too far. He uses his powers, but not enough to be seen. He helps others, but not in a full and direct way. He's got a little light, but he's not letting it shine. (laughs) He's hiding it under a bushel. And Syl's just like, come on, Kaladin, let it shine. Be radiant. And of course, Sadius's betrayal of Dalinar becomes the catalyst for Kaladin to then go out and rescue Dalinar and his remaining troops. They lose a huge number. I think more than like half. It's close to three quarters of his total forces. They're like decimated. Yeah. Uh, The reveal of that betrayal and then Kaladin's rescue. And then, of course, Dalinar is once again left with the decision. Like, do I immediately declare war on Sadius? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he eventually decides because there is a grander goal, a more important... Man, that's a great point because in that action, and I think there's even textual evidence to support this, Sadius planned for a sort of both instances. Like if Dalinar dies he gets you know x outcome that he wants if dalinar survives he still gets like x outcome that he wants because he knows that if dalinar does survive he still has to make this other difficult decision about how to react to this whole thing so like either way sadius kind of wins yeah and if we were simpling it down to a game like chess or go or checkers or tic-tac-toe it doesn't matter there's always moves where you can give your opponent two options that will whatever decision your opponent makes they will lose yeah uh, and, and that Sadius is, what, is master of that game and i think that we have that just brilliant 
ending uh, to Way of Kings where Dalinar very clearly gives Sadius what he wants, which is power, the shard blade, you know, that thing that he always craved and never was able to get. Dalinar slams it down into the earth and just says, take it, it's yours, but I want all of your bridgemen. And that trade is, of course, what then propels the rest of the plot through Words of Radiance and Oathbringer, but it is it exemplifies what Dalinar is willing to give up, who Dalinar is as a person, and how Sadius made Dalinar into mm. that person. Yeah, great point. I love both these relationships. Obviously, we talked about kind of the power dynamic difference between the Lord Ruler and Kelsier, and then how Sadius and Dalinar are basically equals in my eyes uh, throughout uh, the events of Wave Kings and into Words of Radiance. But the question, of course, is who takes up this mantle for Dalinar as his main antagonist? Amaram was a little bit of a possibility. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where Amaram goes. I think, I mean, Sadius dies at the end of Words of Radiance. And I think in Oathbringer, what we see is that Dalinar becomes his own antagonist. Yeah, and obviously manipulated in ways by Odium, but it is the story of Dalinar overcoming that which is internally devastating. Yeah. And that has a different dynamic, and it's not as clear as a, a villain situation. But now we're left in a situation where, you know, we're three books in, we have two more of this sequence, uh, and I don't know exactly if we have a good idea of what's going to happen after that. But we know that this story with Dalinar will continue, and it seems to me that now all Dalinar is worried about is the big bad, the Odium character. Yeah. And I'm I'm interested to see how Brandon plays with that. Well, what about Taravangian? Taravangian is Taravangian, the Because Taravangian, if you think about it, he's similar to Sadius in that he's yes. very good at playing the game, yeah. which plays right into Dalinar's weakness. I think that Taravangian is a good... Uh, foil and could become especially because odium is unlikely to directly challenge dalinar again yeah uh, but taravangian acting you know we see in that last bit we probably will that see, dude's a bad dude yeah we probably will see more taravangian acting uh at the behest of odium or because of odium directly with dalinar i am curious to see what happens only because i really did love the Dalinar Sadius uh, dual relationship, and I'm sad that it's gone. Uh, I think I can get into some Taravangian I can, Dalinar. I mean, Taravangian yeah. is obviously uh, the prime interest, and like I said before, you know, Brandon's just a master of mystery, but does not oh, write man. mystery novels. We could do like a whole episode on Taravangian. We should do a whole episode on Taravangian. Okay. Hit us up in the comments on Reddit, Twitter, Facebook <laughs> if you want a full episode on Taravangian. <laughs> Oh man, the we got to stay focused though. Uh, I think that there is the possibility that we have a okay. So like this is my basic thought is that Brandon can sometimes 
have a problem if the only antagonist is the big super-powered entity, the shards Mm. uh, themselves, dealing with humans. I think we have to see how he keeps them keeps their power levels relatively close and keeps the antagonism more between like mortal characters um, than necessarily the big epic ones. Yeah, I don't know if we're ready, at least at this point in the series, to completely zoom out to just like the cosmic fight. Exactly. And we have to have all of our characters, I think, power up a couple more levels. And that's what the fourth book is for. I mean, I think that we also have to remember that there are five ideals for the different orders of the Knights Radiant. And there are five books in this first Stormlight Archive. Good point. Good so point. we should be seeing and did see most of most of our characters get to the third ideal in the third book. I would expect another power up. And once they are at the fourth ideal level, then it might jump to be more of that cosmic battle. Well, okay, but thing is, also you have to include in power-ups the addition, well, hmm, I guess you could argue if this is a power-up, but the addition of the heralds, the addition of honor blades. Yeah, and I think those are maybe forms of power-ups. I mean, the heralds are kind of the big mystery that's going on in the background yeah exactly like we don't know we know they're around tf is like like, the only thing for the heralds remember the heralds are supposed to be that which protects mankind and have basically failed um to because of their own they got some issues yeah exactly and we have talenalot who is the herald that held out the longest, uh, but all the other ones could in ways be labeled like weaker her- heralds. And they're also now have all gone insane. Oh, man, I cannot wait to get like the full story of the heralds. I So I'm wondering, is it going to be a partnership? This is what we would imagine based on the history of Rashar and what we yeah. know is that we have a partnership between Dalinar and the Knights Radiant and the remain- the heralds on Earth. Um, against odium and the forces and cultivation and cultivation like we don't even know how cultivation plays in this as well because she's give me the rest of the books (laughs) obviously cultivation is a huge aspect she's another big question mark like what's up what's up there why is she only playing in the background is she trying to avoid uh you know odium is she purposefully doing like this is this her style she just like gets in everywhere and then right when you are least expecting it she just like pops out with full force i don't know obviously nobody knows have theories hit us up on yeah, the facebook this, this <laughs> yeah. turned into just like exactly. speculations galore but let's jump back over to scandriel to talk about mistborn era 2 two characters that i think are another great example of kind of keeping it on the same level uh, Wax and Miles' hundred lives. That's debatable. Let's debate it. Well, I don't think Miles is really on the same level as anyone that we know of on Scadriel because, I don't know, I think he's kind of OP. Well, until he dies. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's definitely okay, OP. But it's not really Wax that enables 
Miles's death, it's Morassi. Well, so, okay, you're totally right. You know, and- like they essentially had to combine the powers of three other people in order to precipitate Miles's death. I think what I meant by on the same level is two individuals that kind of seem to be fighting um, more on the same scale of disagreements and morality and kind of um, having similar motivations. Again, kind of bringing it back to that idea of... Yeah, I think this pairing is actually the most... Most, uh, the best example of when two... When an antagonist and protagonist have the same goals. Is that what you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, okay. exactly. Well, I completely agree with that concept because Wax and Miles, of course, are both lawmen of the roughs in Mistborn Era 2. Yeah, they essentially walk the same path or at least like parallel paths for quite a long time until they sort of arrive at this central question, which is whether or not they choose to follow the law once they have seen like the issues with it and obviously miles chooses to throw out the law and kind of work outside of it because of the corruption that he sees whereas wax chooses to work within the law and sort of takes the perspective of trying to fix the system from within the system it is so interesting that idea of like walking a mile in someone's moccasins, uh, the you know traditional saying, but the concept that Miles and Wax not only go a similar path, but they actually come at it from a very similar perspective in that each of them is an incredibly powerful dual wielder of these magic systems. Uh, you know, I think... There's that scene uh, when Chris says that uh, Wax is one of only three Mm -hmm. specific compounders that has ever existed, and Miles is the only one that anybody knows of who has the gold compounding. Yeah. So they are both, you know, incredibly powerful individuals on a planet that has a history of, you know, having some pretty cool individuals and power ups, um, and they both walk this line outside the main cities but i think you bring up a great point because that's one of miles's main things is that he eventually comes to the conclusion that because they have these powers they deserve to be worshipped like gods whereas wax sort of takes the like superman approach of being like no we have these powers and so we are bound to serve the other people who are not as fortunate as we are yeah, Superman, the kind of uh, you know, Spider-Man, Uncle Ben says to him, yeah. those with great power have great responsibility. That's totally a Wax's uh, mindset. And I think that, so we have Miles who is motivated in large part uh, by the injustice that he sees in the rough, by the oppression coming out of the city of Ellendale. Uh, one of the quotes that i love from him is as follows quote i do what needs to be done wax isn't that the code of a law keeper i haven't stopped being one you never stop being a law keeper it gets in you you do what nobody else will you stand up for the downtrodden make things better stop the criminals end quote and he has obviously turned his attention to the political leaders and the kind of nobility even though they don't go by that straight name anymore um 
to focus his energy and his uh, hatred. And Wax is kind of sympathetic to that idea because he also left and abandoned that city to go to the roughs in the first place. Yeah. And that's what makes their interaction so interesting is because Wax basically, I mean, not 100%, but he has a lot of empathy for where Miles is coming from. He understands that perspective completely. And yet they have clearly chosen completely different paths. I think that there's also the kind of idea or concept that Miles in some ways is poking directly at Wax's weakness in part because he knew Wax from before and specifically Wax with uh, Lessie or when they were interacting together in the roughs. And there's a little bit of a, a vibe that I, I get just a, a tiny smidge. I think it's just a, a kind of throwaway line or throwaway sentence where Wax imagines or kind of like asks the question of, you know, what could have happened if Lessie had some type of power like uh, healing as mm, Wayne mm-hmm. or Miles does, you know, in a world when you see this type of yeah. crazy stuff and then he goes through this trauma of losing the one he loves. Uh, it's very normal to just be like, what if that power I- existed in her in that moment um, and how things could have been different? And then you just go down the the whole path of how my life would have been different type of thing. But I, I think that that is kind of the key aspect of wax versus miles is that just by miles existence and the the manner in which he keeps healing over and over again it kind of directly attacks wax's mortality and as well as his issues with mortality in that he's lost people are you saying that like wax like it's not fair that miles is alive and can stay alive through anything when Lessie died a little bit yeah kind of just like the the way that Uh he exists in that universe as an immortal basically figure and wax has so clearly dealt with the trauma of death and loss yeah because his parents and his sister too at least right now what he knows is that they're dead yeah exactly so it's a man who is continually dealing with loss and death and another man who is continually surviving death or what should be death mm-hmm. uh, and healing from that. Speaking of surviving, something I think is really interesting since we just talked about Kelsier, Miles is so reminiscent of Kelsier in their like philosophies surrounding the nobility or like takedown of the nobility and like they don't deserve to be spared, that kind of really cutthroat um, attitude towards it. Super similar. And I think that's such an interesting concept that Brandon plays with, taking what was a hero, certainly like of the first Mistborn book, a you know protagonist mm-hmm. character, and then turning that mindset and mentality into the antagonist. Because it was a very delicate yeah. line that he walked with Kelsier. And like showing it from the other perspective and being like, if you just look at basically the same philosophy through another lens, yeah. this is now a villain and not the hero. I would love to be able to ask if that was a little bit of the uh, mindset that Brandon had when creating Wax, if there was a little bit of like, because he, we've talked yeah, about I this before. Yeah, I think there is a word of Brandon, actually, because they mentioned something, there was something that was mentioned on the Copper Mind about it. Fantastic. The 
interesting thing that uh, you mentioned off mic was that, you know, what would Miles be like? How would he fit into the Rosharian system that we've seen? Which order? Yeah, because I think another sort of comparison here, Miles, like if he was on Roshar, he would definitely be a skybreaker because he has that very black and white idea of justice, of just this like an eye for an eye, like they did something bad, therefore they deserve to die, period. Yeah, very much the kind of twisted mindset that we see from Nalm or or the herald yeah. of justice, right? Yeah, which uh, is interesting actually because Nalan is all about following the exact letter of the law, no matter if it's actually just or not. And Miles actually takes the opposite approach of saying like, I'm following the law. It's just not the actual letter of the law. It's like the true law of humanity. And yet they like come to the same place where they are meeting out justice that is maybe not the most just thing. There's another quote from Miles. He says, quote, what we do, it's not outside the law, not the true law. Oh, the rich make their own codes, will force us to live by them. But our law is the law of humanity itself. Men who work for me, they are given the dispensation of reform. Their work here washes away their previous infractions, end quote. That concept of like what is the true law and the nature of the law, it's definitely a recurring theme throughout the Cosmere and this kind of uh, it even gets down to like the romantic theory as well about, you know, what is some someone's true nature? Um, you know, where are they coming from? What are they projecting out of the spiritual realm uh, versus how they portray themselves? It, it does kind of cut directly against Wax's philosophy that he is trying to bring himself to in that first book because he's trying to come up with the idea of, I'm going to go back to the city and I'm going to get married Yeah, and I'm well, going to have the house and the, <laughs> the name and everything's going to be. And Miles is challenging that idea, yeah. saying like, that's wrong. These people are wrong. And what you should be doing is making the decision that I have made. Right. And like fighting against them. I think that's a great point because going along with our like stated sort of thesis on this episode, that is a way in which Miles directly attacks waxes weak points and of course we also see over the next couple of books that it does that original battle between wax and miles does push him to change and to not accept the meek life but instead to become the blended character yeah uh, that we know of wax by the end of the books it's almost in many ways like the relationship we saw with T'Challa and uh, <laughs> Killmonger again to like bring it back to that you know they it's a little bit more of an empathetic relationship where we yeah. can kind of understand and even sympathize with the villain in this circumstance uh, and by the end of Black Panther you know T'Challa is not saying Killmonger was wrong uh, yeah. he's kind of saying that Killmonger was right. I'm just going to do it in a different way. Yeah. And that is very similar, I feel, to what Wax's ultimate conclusion is, is that, you know, Miles isn't 100% wrong, uh, but I can, I'm a better means to this end. I, I, have, I have a walk a better path. Absolutely. 
I think that there is just a a bit of an interesting question that is going to become even more significant with Mistborn Era 3 and possibly the conclusion to Era 2, because what we are seeing in Era 2 is all these amazing powers of Farukami or Allomancy that we were introduced to, and now they're being combined, right? They're being combined in an individual like Wax, in an individual like Miles, but more importantly, they are being combined with technology that allows anyone to pick up the power and to use that incredible ability in many different ways to create technology, as we see. Yeah, and that is definitely one of the most interesting things that have been introduced in the books. Hopefully, I'm sure we'll see more of it. But in a world that has now no Mistborns, they are sort of inching closer and closer to that amount of power again, and probably even more so, I would say, because previously the Mistborn could only have all of the Allomantic powers. Now humans are going to be able to have all Allomantic and all ferrochemical powers and the possibility of augmenting those powers with hemallergy as well oh, to dang. i mean so this is really the question that scadriel puts forward i think in a more direct way than the epic of the stormlight archive or any of the other books in the cosmere is on scadriel we're getting the question of like how far can you take a relatively simplistic magic system to what ends can you avenge? And I love that concept. That I mean, Brandon- I think the magic on schedule is complicated. It, well, it's very complicated, but it's also incredibly simple the first time. It starts out really simple, but I, I feel like it got complicated really fast. And then now, especially with compounding between Allomancy and Farukami, you almost have like this second set of powers that's made by yes. the overlap there. Ooh, that's a good point too. Yeah. And then when you bring up hemallergy, the overlap between hemallergy and the other powers is going to create another scale of powers essentially. So it's like so many powers. And remember, there is the possibility, though we haven't seen it in play yet, but there is the possibility that hemallergic principle can be applied to other forms of investiture on other planets. I'm pretty sure that's a word of Brandon. Like, I think that's for sure, for sure. Because I, you know, originally thought that maybe Nightblood was somehow created through hemallergy. But that idea was shot down by uh, another word of Brandon. But there's also, like, got to be some type of hemallergy that creates Nightblood. Maybe Nightblood 2.0 that uh, yeah, uh, Azure has. Isn't it uh, shard blades that are essentially like bound by the same principles that hemallergy uses? In its most basic way, yeah. yes. I think that it's very similar to hemallergy. I just feel like we haven't had the ultimate uh, moment of just like, oh shit, that's hemallergy on Rashar or okay. on like we, it hasn't yeah. been super clearly laid out. Obviously, we're going to go back and be like, oh, Brandon. You snuck it in there, uh, and, and it's going to be like yeah. right in front of our faces. This one piece of jewelry that you mentioned one time in yeah. Way of Kings was actually hemallergy. Oh, that that would be cool, actually, if like Navani came up with some. Because remember, Spren is really like abusing the. Oh, I'm sorry, when they create the technology, the Fabrials out of their 
kind of abusing the nature of spren uh, and manipulating the nature of spren. And we know that spren are cognitive and spiritual creations. And so, you know, it's about like trapping, uh, drawing in the spren to what they like and then trapping them and kind of abusing that power, that energy to then create whatever piece of technology you have. So that's kind of a little bit of, you know, manipulation yeah. of and maybe getting into like hemology principles so i think that what we might see over time and obviously brandon has hinted that mistborn era three is going to be like a more uh, modern like 1980s kind of spy thriller and then mistborn era four is all about internet space. Yeah, space travel uh intergalactic space travel maybe not intergalactic but uh, through the galaxy oh, yeah, of yeah, yeah. the Cosmere, uh, but not between galaxies. Oh, We're not dang. that cool yet. <laughs> that would be that would be too much. I think my brain would explode. <laughs> we can barely hold this together. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go to our last pairing, Zeth and Kaladin. Since we've been talking about Shard Billions and Spren, we might as well hop on over to Rishar. Make it official <laughs> with our protagonist of stormlight archive and book one uh we have kaladin who really is all about being contradicted to zeth in the first two books really um and then obviously by oathbringer they're technically on the same side <laughs> but i don't think kaladin has had really any moment to process that yeah. zeth has joined them because he joins yeah. them in the last fight and i think there is an, an acknowledgement that like uh kaladin's fighting amaram and like looks over and is like is that the assassin of yeah uh but i don't think he's ever had like a moment to really kind of sit down and process what is going on but yeah, I feel like he, he's probably going to have a problem with that. Um, I'm thinking it's going to be an issue. Like, I can't imagine that he's going to just be like, oh, hey, Zeth, good to see you. Your head's looking bald. Like, <laughs> it's not going to be a friendly reunion. It might be like, your head is bald. Does that ever bother you? And I'm going to cut it off. <laughs> um, but I think this is kind of an interesting pairing because they these two are not quite as diametrically opposed as some of our other pairings but they deal with a lot of the same themes and the same struggles and take different paths so sort of similar in the pattern that we've been looking at and yet different in the same way yeah it's almost in some respects like zeth in some ways again this is just kind of spe mm -hmm. soft speculation but like zeth in some ways, is rejected by his community, thrown out, uh, truthless, of Shinovar. And Kaladin is made a slave, kind of thrown out, rejected by his community unjustly, just like Zeth is unjustly thrown out. But Kaladin finds that connection and is brought back in by Syl, which Zeth doesn't have. All he has is that stone, just that constant reminder that he is truthless and he has to, has to, in quotes, obey his master. Yeah. So I think both of these men at some point are slaves. Mm -hmm. Zeth is a slave to his oath stone, which makes him a slave to, you know, whoever holds it, which ends up being quite a lot of people. And... Kaladin obviously is a slave of, well, also quite a few people, but eventually Sadius. And we see that 
affect them both in, in kind of similar ways where it's like yeah. motivating them uh, to keep going. You know, Zeth is... Sometime. Well, Zeth is forbidden to take his own life. But I but and I think definitely the, wanted to. And Kaladin well, yeah. definitely wanted to at times as well. But both But the difference is that Zeth is like very resigned. Like you said, he's kind of just like, All right, this is what I have to do. Mm-hmm. In quotes, I have to. But like that's his perspective. Whereas Kaladin, he toes that line, like you were saying, of of resignation and just kind of being like, well, this is my lot. I'm just a slave. Like I'll give up. Um, but he does have the benefit of having Syl, who like pulls him back from that. Yeah. I think obviously in both those first two stormlight books, we get the story of the wander sale and the community of people that was, that's such a good story. I mean, wit is a fantastic storyteller. Uh, but we have, that story basically representing Zeth in many respects, um, you know, following the orders of a master or a king that is long dead yeah. and Zeth following mindlessly the orders to his own horror and to the, the people's own horror. And then on the other side or in the next book, we get the story of Fleet and running until he could not run anymore. And, and that is in many respects uh, Kaladin, where he just he chooses keeps to going, keep going. Yeah, and he just keeps pushing and just and he'll go until he literally breaks down and dies. And those those kind of keep reminding me those two stories and the way that they're both told by wit is that, you know, these characters are linked in many respects. They share um, now by Oathbringer, since Zeth is full, obviously first he had the, uh, the honor blade, but now he is a full third ideal member of the Skybreakers, which shares powers yeah, that's with what I was just Kaladin. Say. So yeah. These- yeah. Interestingly, they have this, they do like share a border and like have things in common. Um, I think especially about their sort of dedication to doing what they think is the right thing. Like, they're both trying to do that. And wasn't it the, in ancient Risharian history, wasn't it the Skybreakers and the Windrunners that were the beginnings of breaking apart? Like, the on the Windrunners, uh, I felt, were said to have wanted to go in one direction, and they were resisted by the Skybreakers. And that mm. began to fray the Orders of the Knights Radiant, because I think pe- some people started take sides some people didn't want anything to happen and that was the beginning of the end of the knight's radiant on rashar i thought it was between those two orders and so then we have leading those two orders in their recreation two enemies i mean two rivals i think that this is obviously more than any of the other relationships that we've talked about uh one that is going to have a much different conclusion um, where so often Dalinar and Sadius, Wax and Miles, their relationship ended with one death. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Kelsier and Lord Ruler both died. <laughs> True. But uh, Zeth and Kaladin, you know, they're only partway through their story. And I mean, I guess technically Zeth did die. <laughs> there is a little bit of a question about in at least in my respect, is how close did Kaladin come to death as well? In, when in his Fair. sacrificial yeah. uh, moment, like you know, there is 
this aspect of their stories where they begin as rivals. Now they're still rivals and they're in kind of a rival orders, but they're supposed to be allies. And we don't exactly know how that's going to go in the future. But I believe that there's an important line that comes from Syl when she specifically tells Kaladin, you're not a skybreaker. You're not supposed to be like this. Yes. And I loved that moment because I think by that point, we have seen enough of Kaladin that as a reader, I feel like I know him, you know, and his behavior is, you know, so clearly like a good friend when you're like, you're just not being yourself right now. Like this is not who you are. And so I loved when Syl said that it was like, yes, that's right. Um, But he kind of toes that line in between being a windrunner and a skybreaker. And he like takes a little journey over the line to see what it's like just being a, you know, retribution sort of black and white justice kind of dude. And it doesn't work out so well for him. It's even interesting to me that Zeth swears himself to another individual. And oh, Yes. I mean, he swears himself to Dalinar, and that's the elevation to the third ideal right before the final battle in Oathbringer, um, which is, of course, just an extension of his kind of unwillingness or or his very much willingness to put authority in something else, where Kaladin's always struggling to resist authority from anybody else and to come up with like an internal code and a code of honor. Well, yeah. And that's what I think is so interesting about that moment, because to me, that's kind of the central conflict between the Skybreakers and the Windrunners is that Windrunners honor. That's kind of by definition, a personal code. You honor the thing that you feel in your heart is right. Whereas the skybreakers are like, that's not good enough because what if what's in your heart is crappy? Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is place our trust in something that is external, that is, you know, logical and rational. And it's right here on a page in black and white. It's the law. And so for Zeth, as a skybreaker to like go against that and to swear himself to another human being who is fallible. I, especially after, you know, everything that he's gone through, you're like, dude, you have been a slave of so many men who have clearly been bad people. Like, how are you going to do this again? I just thought that was a super interesting thing to happen. And it is against the will, or at least the suggestion of yeah, Nalan. Nalan. Completely. Yeah, because absolutely. Nalan's decided to fight for the other side. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, all right, you can do what you want. Like, I will fight you when we fight. But like, in between that, I'll meet you and we can train. <laughs> it kind of makes Dalinar, because Dalinar is a central focus of Oathbringer. And in my opinion, it's more of a look how cool Dalinar is moment than look at the decision that Seth is making. Because like you, I think if you explore that decision, it might not work out for Zeth. No, uh, that's a stupid decision. <laughs> I mean, we like we know and love Dalinar, but, it's, but yeah. he's a fallible person. And we just spent an entire book learning about all the mistakes he's made. Not And not just in the past, like in the present. He literally <laughs> broke down and could not lead because he was so upset like, and traumatized yeah exactly and so 
that is the the individual that Zeth has sworn himself to. And I find it so interesting that even though Kaladin was saved by Dalinar, freed by Dalinar, elevated to basically the highest position that any dark eyes person yes. has been in the history of the Rashari or the At least the modern Rashari yeah, exactly. world. And he, Kaladin, is so resistant even to Dalinar's yeah. leadership. He is always skeptical. Like he, and again, this is where they share something in common. Kaladin also has been a slave of men who were not good men. And so because of all of those experiences, he's incredibly hesitant to pledge himself to another human. And then we see like this other side of the coin where Zeth is just like, yep, sign me up. <laughs> I kind of wonder if there is a possibility that Zeth could be turned away uh, again if he could, like he he swore himself and we're assuming that swearing is forever, but uh, I, I kind of wonder if it also opens up a little bit of weakness where if we flip the roles and we say Zeth is our hero, our protagonist, it might be possible that Kaladin becomes his antagonist and starts attacking that belief in the next couple of books and be like, you know, why challenging that choice of Zeth? Mm. Why yeah, did you to swear? like see them in dialogue over that decision? I could totally see that. And to have the debate being about, you know, some decision that Dalinar has made, some commitment that he's made or some effort to attack Odium and Kaladin being on the opposite side of that. We've seen how much he has begun to question war in general and yeah. fighting in general and losing all these people. And now Zeth, the assassin in white, you know, one of the greatest killers that Rashar has ever known, is blindly committing himself to Dalinar. I am interested to see if what might happen, maybe, is some type of reversal where Kaladin begins by joining Dalinar's army, but will end mm. by leaving it in some way. Dang. And Zeth will start as attacking Dalinar, you know, ending yeah. the kingdoms, but will end by being its like biggest champion, the champion of the Dalinar. That would puts be forth. a crazy reversal. Exactly. I am. I just thought of this though. I'm interested. I'm interested because Nalan revives Zeth from death right gives him night blood which is like the most terrifying thing ever a freaking crazy person with night blood um, and insinuates that he has like a new future planned for zeth and so i'm wondering like i feel like nalan wouldn't allow zeth to join dalinar's side if it wasn't like part of his plan already you know wouldn't that just kind of maybe oh my god benefit what i am saying because yeah, yeah that's Nalan's what i'm saying plan is to but i also question because i guess did nalan always know that the the singers or the parshendi are the the true people that he was going to follow um i thought that was a discovery of his as well during... i think it's a discovery off screen yeah exactly like i think since we have known him since Way of Kings, like since he started being super active again. Has he known? He's always had that okay. knowledge. Okay. Well then, yeah. I mean, I think the question that I have really is, because this is what Brandon is always so good at, in my opinion. He gives what us- What if Kaladin is 
the bad the guy. villain yeah oh my exactly god. oh my god not the villain but the person who is going to choose to follow himself and follow his own internal code against who we've labeled and come to love as the heroes because what i've learned more about anything uh from rosharian history is that the way that we expect the story to go is not the way it's going to end up. Yes. And I can just see that we spend, you know, four books, the next book too, um, all kind of building up these characters that we love and we're following them. And then it's revealed in Oathbringer that, you know what? Humans are not the uh, native species yeah. on Rashar, and it flips everything on the script. You know, all the, the stories... void bringers were actually the conquered people. Yeah, ex the, yeah, exactly. And now they're they're trapped. Oh man, there's so many scenes Ugh. of just like sadness when you realize what they went through. Uh, you know, we read I one in our Oathbringer mini episodes on Oathbringer, <laughs> like ten through twenty, all about Oathbringer. But that idea of just being trapped inside your own mind your own body and, and yeah. being a slave more like incapable of even understanding what was happening but just like knowing deep in your soul that something is wrong yeah and you can't explain or think or fight or do anything kaladin was able to carry around a tiny bit of uh poison the little leaves right super deadly uh because he was like well you know if this gets bad enough i can always choose to die the Parshen, they never had that option. They didn't choose to die. They couldn't choose anything. They were just mindless slaves, for, and that was forced upon them. And this is all stuff that if we just took the normal history that we understood about Rashar, the Parshendi are not the sympathetic characters. And then it flips the script, and now I have to wonder— you know, what is the end result of this massive war? If the humans win— did they just enslave the Parshendi again? Or are the Parshendi in book four going to become our heroes? Oh my gosh. And the humans become our villains. Okay, but then also, what about the Shin? The Shin are interesting. They're so interesting. But this is, we're getting off track. They're, well, this is the next <laughs> five episodes because we're already pushing uh, well over an hour here. So let's say this. <laughs> our friends on the internet... There are many possibilities for the Stormlight Archive, and there are many different rivalries and villains that we didn't get to. I think that if you have any thoughts on these different relationships, whether it is from this episode or previous episodes, reach out, let us know yeah. how you feel and what direction you kind of want us to go in, uh, because we are obviously willing to talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> Until next time. Life before death. Strength before weakness. Journey before destination. <laughs>